Hi, everyone. This is Aaron Persola Network, and I am here today with Sam D. Kim. Uh, Sam wrote the book, A Holy Haunting. I uh, reviewed this for Sola. You can find the link in the show notes, but I want to talk to him today about his book and uh, some points that I made in my review. Sam, nice to nice to see you here. How are you doing? Pretty good. Uh, such an honor. Thank you so much for your support um, and your gracious words. Yeah. Um, your book published by Morgan James Faith, A Holy Haunting. Um, it, it's it's about um, it's about faith, I guess. And it's about how how people, I guess, come to faith. Is that correct? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the faith journey and the process. Um, and I do three buckets, faith as a theory, process, and practice, because it's often misunderstood by the secular elite and misunderstood by those within the walls of the church as well. Yeah. Um, something really interesting about you is just your entire background. <laughs> Uh, can can you tell me some of your background? Maybe introduce yourself to our audience as well, and how this how writing this book really came about. Yeah, so I'm a ethics scholar. Um, I was at Yale and appointed at Harvard Medical School at the Center of Bioethics. Um, basically, the evangelical scholar for Christian ethics there, and. One of the main reasons why I, I felt compelled to write a holy haunting was because this crazy misconception that secular elites and then those in the church had about faith. Like everyone kept saying faith is a blind leap. Uh, you know, it's about a visceral leap. And I'm like, it's not because the New Testament depicts it as a series of steps. Mm. You can clearly see that with the disciples journey of faith it was like the beatles say a long and winding road mm. not a straight path it was sinuous and i really wanted to kind of clarify that for especially for those in stem and engineering and and a lot of my friends in the ivy tower that just felt like they couldn't relate to the anti-science sort of rhetoric that they how they understood faith mm. so i wanted to help them kind of see that it's not only rational, but it's also beautiful. Yeah. Um, you have this story at the very beginning of your book where you're describing spiritual rebirth and you used a word, uh, what is, you said spiritual puberty. Yeah. <laughs> and um, you're talking about, I guess, how you ended up uh, at, at one. Well, I'll let you tell the story, actually. Can you explain that term for me, spiritual puberty, yeah. where that comes from and how that relates? Yeah. <laughs> we were actually going to, one of the titles of the book was spiritual puberty, but. Okay. <laughs> corny but uh the the point is it comes from jesus's um statements when he says that if in john 3 he says if you want to be born if you want to enter the kingdom of heaven you have to be born again and so uh, that's maternity or you know birth mm -hmm. and in another passage of scripture jesus says if you want to enter the kingdom of heaven, you have to become like little children, which equates to puberty. So if <laughs> faith can be akin to maternity and puberty, it's mm -hmm. going to always be something of a mess, whether it's changing diapers because it's messy. It's a, I mean, I've been I have two sons, one's 16, one's 11, and it's messy. Their birth was messy. Mm -hmm. But at the same time adolescence is also messy rebellion and resistance and independence all of that and so 
why do we take what's rooted in scripture, a messy process, mm. and try to really clean it up and make it very black and white? And I mm. think that doesn't do it justice. Mm. Um, can you can you retell that story about how, I guess, something about oh, how you were, <laughs> something yeah. about girls? Yeah, yeah. So to frame spiritual puberty, uh, I use the idea of being being a skeptic of love when I was in, you know, in the first grade and thinking when I saw these long haired aliens, I really <laughs> theorized that they're, they were, they must have crashed from a galaxy far, far away because they were so different than I, I was yeah. and the guys that I was hanging out with. And then in Sunday school, I heard that Eve was created to be a helper. And I was like, well, this is definitely not true because <laughs> none of the girls I knew were very helpful at all. So I was a, I was skeptical, a skeptic of love until I turned, uh, I think, 11 or 12 in the fourth grade, where I experienced my own puberty process. And I realized <laughs> that there was no power I could overcome this change in me. It went from skepticism to worship, from skepticism to idolatry. So I relate that to how sometimes when we think we know something or how we try to frame something about what we believe we're actually trying to make sense of those things and it could be quite silly but we're just trying to make sense of the world and i think a lot of atheists or agnostics a lot of times they think of faith that way or even god that way they go oh no i can't believe that i don't think i believe that. i definitely don't believe that mm. but as they go through a developmental evolutionary process where you have a kid or you get married there are these tensions and things that happen that can't explain everything and you begin to the layers uh sort of go away and you begin to see differently like yeah. i did yeah. My, yeah i i i obviously it's a funny story right but i mean i, I think it's very relatable um mm -hmm. the way that you actually define biblical faith in the book though okay is is that you say um it's a lifelong evolutionary longing to make mm -hmm. meaning of human existence in light of a higher plane of reality yeah. now that's a great definition but i'm going to ask you if you can explain that in simpler terms for, yeah. for me and for my audience yeah well uh what that simply means is that like c.s lewis would say if nothing in this world can ultimately satisfy you then then the logical rational reason would be that you were made for another world mm. solomon talks about in ecclesiastes how eternity was set in their hearts um, all it really means is that no matter uh, what we do, Psalms 46 says that the deep calls on to deep. There's something about our lives that just doesn't satisfy. Mm. And it's so deep, it's chasmic, and nothing can do it. And so we want to make sense of our life, and it it's just not enough, this material lifestyle. Love. We are seeking for something transcendent something beautiful some mm. meaning mm. and that's what it really means we're trying to make sense are we here by accident i think mm. that's the question like mm. rick warren would do that in purpose driven life or are we here on purpose and it's almost like we can't get away from it and that's why my book is called ah a holy <laughs> this mm. it haunts us. the question haunts us yeah yeah um the deconstruction 
kind of plays a big part in your book. I think uh, you, you're talking about it. you're not afraid to to tackle it. I think, um, and there was there's one uh, section where um, that moved me a lot. It said that uh, um, some who deconstruct they choose to live as expats in a self-imposed exile. And you kind of explained that, uh, but I want to ask you if you can elaborate that for us on the podcast. Yeah, um, I just have so many people who read the book or before just stories of coming, you know, people coming to me. One Columbia University student uh, asked for a private meeting and said, you know, I don't know how to break into my parents, but I don't think I'm a Christian anymore. Mm, mm, mm. Uh, or uh, a new student at Columbia was the president of his youth group at Singapore and uh, couldn't ask these tensions, uh, questions and doubts he had to his youth group or his youth pastor or his pastors because he was supposed to be the role model Christian. And mm, mm. he didn't also want to be a contagion that helps people stumble their faith. And, and it, it when they look me in the eye and tell me this, there there are like, there it's heartbreaking for them because mm -hmm. there is no safe place mm -hmm. to process those doubts without disappointing themselves or others. And so what, what ends up happening is they isolate and, and ex, they, they become expats, really, um, yeah. vagabonds, spiritual vagabonds, and leave the church because they think they're doing the better thing for the church in many yeah. ways. Yeah, um, I think it resonated with me because, yeah, we I think many of us probably know people that are like that. Um, and so uh, maybe this, this last question here, maybe can, can help here. Uh, you, you conclude with a call to cross the swamp of doubt, right? And I think that's what you're calling maybe people to do, or maybe people who are experienced deconstruction to do, you know, like just, just cross it. Right. And so, um, how would you give advice to people who are maybe struggling with that or trying to make it across? And then what advice would you give for um, leaders, pastors, um, who are who are trying to help people as they come along to do that? Yeah, I would say crossing the swamp, uh, it's a lot about fear. Um, but my advice would be for pastors and leaders is, mm -hmm. what does Jesus do when people doubt in the New Testament? Like, for example, Thomas. Mm -hmm. So... I feel like, especially in the Asian context, there's a lot of honor and shame. And we might even be disappointed in leaders that doubt like that. But when Thomas doubted his faith, Jesus didn't come with a triumphant theology of power, but he helped them understand and integrate in their discipleship a theology of weakness as well. When Thomas says, I won't believe unless I touch your hands and your side, um, it wasn't about power, right? I mean, the power mm. happened in the resurrection. Why did he comply to Thomas's request? Mm. It was an act of love. Mm. And it was gentleness. And it was kindness. Mm. And ultimately, even miracles like the resurrection or feeding the 5,000 didn't convince the disciples mm. of the legitimacy or the historicity of Jesus, or who he was as Messiah, it was his kindness that led mm. him to repentance mm. and the convergence took place. My advice would be, we must be also lead like Jesus and open our hands and walk with people. And, and that kindness and that love of God translates. Because a lot of times from what I've seen with deconstruction is that people don't leave the faith. Mm -hmm. It's their, their greatest fear is hyperbolic. 
mm-hmm. and catastrophic. It's like, I can't believe that I'm having these thoughts. Um, and so just giving permission relieves a lot of the tension. Yeah. And then people begin to see the love of God sort of break forth. Yeah. Many, right? Yeah. Man, um, Sam, I want to ask you one more question. Sorry, this is off script. Okay. So we can cut this if it, if it doesn't work out. Um, but I mean, you're Korean American. Is that correct? You're Korean American? Yeah. I, I want I want to hear how your background or your you know your um your Korean Americanness played into this book because I don't I don't think you're like shying away from it in your book. I want to know how your background and how that that maybe was it your upbringing or like you know what is there something particular that made you want to write about this or maybe that that makes you relate more to people who are deconstructing or are struggling in their faith because of your uh, background. I don't know if, if, if it's true or not. Oh, um, well, like I said, I think, I think it definitely does as, um, an Asian American, yeah, uh, especially Korean American, uh, there, my father, my, my parents helped plant churches. I mean, they weren't pastors, but they were business leaders, entrepreneurs. Okay. Um, they, they were strong on the theology of power and breakthrough and high intensity which is sort of a Korean invention of sure. um, spirituality that sort of, you know, revitalized Korea economically in many ways mm. as well. Mm. But why I think deconstruction was hard for me particularly was because there's no theology of weakness. There was mm. no taught on grief. There was no taught on ambiguity. There's no taught, nothing taught really on um, the the you know being nuanced about life when mm. the Bible speaks a lot about it. So I think that um, I, w- I, I was taught to think very black and white and yeah. to process that was very difficult. And I didn't want others to feel that and, and do it alone. And I, and I hope that in some small way, um, my memoir in many ways could help them not feel alone. That's, that's really the goal. 